At the heart of the Jewish quarter in the old city of Jerusalem, there is a wall. It's the last remaining vestige of the Jews' ancient temple. Actually, it's the western side of a retaining wall that used to surround the Temple Mount. Jews are required to come to their temple in Jerusalem to worship God three times a year. Since this wall is all that remains of their temple, it stands as the most sacred site in all of Judaism. Even today, Jews, as well as some Gentiles, journey to this wall to pray. People will even write their prayers on little slips of paper and place them in the crevices and cracks between the ancient stones. There's even an internet service, by the way, where you can text in your prayers and a Jewish Torah student will place it in the wall for you. Many Jews come there. They weep and they wail and they mourn. They mourn over their sins and over the plight of their people, and thus the nickname, the Wailing Wall. Well, the book of Lamentations also has a nickname. It's called the Bible's Wailing Wall. This book was written as a funeral dirge, a eulogy, a bitter song of mourning. Tradition says that it was penned by Jeremiah after the Babylonian horde had conquered Jerusalem for a third time and had burned it to the ground. As Jeremiah watched his shackled comrades hauled off to Babylon, you can be sure it broke his heart. He wept, he cried, he mourned over the fall of the nation of Judah. In fact, every year, even today, on the fast day of Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the anniversary of the destruction of the temple, Jeremiah's lament is read in Jewish synagogues all around the world. Outside the northern wall of the old city of Jerusalem, there is a cave it's called Jeremiah's Grotto. According to tradition, this is where he composed his lamentation. The cave is north of the city alongside the road that led to Babylon. So when the invaders took the Jews hostage, they transported them into exile along this road. They were forcibly paraded just below Jeremiah's overlook as the weeping prophet sat there and wept and wrote. Lamentations consists of five poems. Four of the five, chapters one through four, are in an acrostic form. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and in chapters one, two, and four, there are 22 verses in each chapter. That means that each verse begins with a succeeding letter of the alphabet. Chapter three is the fullest of the confessions, it contains 66 verses, and it too is in an acrostic. Every three verses begin with a succeeding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Lamentations 5 is also 22 verses, but it, has, it was not written in an acrostic form. And quite frankly, we have no idea why. There is a psalm, by the way, that appears as an acrostic. Do you know, do you know which one it was? Do you remember? How about Psalm 119? There, every eight verses begin with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's interesting, Psalm 119 broadcasts the blessings of obeying the Word of God. Whereas Jeremiah's acrostic, his lament, describes the destruction that's caused by disobeying the Word of God. 
It's also interesting that Jeremiah's grotto belongs to a hill called the Skull. Skull Hill. Or as the Greeks put it, Calvary. It's no accident that the prophet wept where the Savior died. In the same spot that Jeremiah suffered with his people, Jesus will later suffer for his people. Both Jeremiah and Jesus reveal God's broken heart over the sins of his people Judah. In fact, Harry Ironside once wrote, The God of Israel was no cold, indifferent spectator of the anguish, humiliation, and pains of the people of his choice. His holiness demanded he chasten them for their iniquities. But his heart was grieved for them still, as a loving father is sorely pained in his own correction of a wayward son. Before he spanked me, and and I did get spanked, I think once as a child. But before he spanked me, my dad would always say, Son, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. Of course, I never believed him until I had a child of my own, until I was a dad. But it does hurt a father's heart to have to discipline his children. Well, we've saved the last chapter in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 52, because it serves as a good introduction to the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah 52 describes the fall of Jerusalem from a historical perspective whereas the five chapters of Lamentation views the same events from an emotional, spiritual perspective. Let's start in Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamital, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Now, we know that Jeremiah the prophet had no children, so don't confuse this with the prophet Jeremiah. It was just a common name. Here it was also the name of Zedekiah's grandpa. Now sadly, Zedekiah also, King Zedekiah also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. Jehoiakim, a predecessor of Zedekiah, had set the benchmark for wickedness. He had tragically been the role model and Zedekiah had walked in his ways. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, till he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. For 18 months, the city of Jerusalem was under siege. And this created dire, desperate conditions. You see, siege warfare was common in the ancient world. An army would surround a city, cut off its supply lines, and then play the waiting game. A city under siege knew that it was only a matter of time before it became so desperate that it either was forced to fight or else surrender. Imagine these conditions. Severe famine, garbage excrement piled high in the streets, homes infested with rats, disease that had reached epidemic levels, low morale, 
I mean, this is what you would find in a city under siege. The Babylonian siege of Jerusalem began on the 10th day of the 10th month. It's interesting, this is the same day that the prophet Ezekiel's wife, who was living in Babylon, died as a symbol of the nation's death. Very same day, she died. Ezekiel 24 tells you the story. Apparently, the prophet Ezekiel knew that this siege marked the beginning of the end for Jerusalem and for the Jews. Verse 7, Then the city wall was broken through. And here's the date for you. July the 18th, 586 B.C., a day that will live in infamy. This was the day that the walls were breached, that the invasion began. And all the men of war fled and went out of the city at night by way of the gate. They tried to escape by the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around. And they went by way of the plain. The Hebrew word plain is the Arabah, which referred to the Jordan Valley eastward, stretching out toward the river. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. Jeremiah's escape attempt had failed. He was forsaken by his own men and captured by the Babylonians. And his plight was not a good one. And so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he pronounced judgment on it. Riblah was in Syria, and it had served as Nebuchadnezzar's field headquarters during the siege of Jerusalem. It was now the staging area for the Jewish deportation. Verse 10 tells us what happened to Zedekiah. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah And the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison till the day of his death. What a cruel punishment indeed. They killed Zedekiah's sons before his very eyes. And then they burn out his eyes with a hot poker so that the last lingering vision in this man's mind for the rest of his life is the slaughter of his own sons. Thus the consequences of disobedience to God. Verse 12. Now in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, which was the eighteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house. That is the temple. He burned the temple to the ground, as well as the palace, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, All the houses of the great he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poor people, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the craftsmen. And the idea of deporting the craftsmen was to keep the Jews from rebuilding what had been torn down. But Nebuchadnezzar and the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. 
They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered. The basins, the fire pans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons, and the cups. Whatever was solid gold and whatever was solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. Ladies, imagine them hauling off your fine china, your silver that had been passed down by grandma. Really, this was loot to the Babylonians. This furniture, these utensils. It was just loot to the Babylonians. But to the people of God, these articles were holy. They were holy to the Lord. They had been separated and dedicated for the work of the Lord, for the sacrifices in the temple. And now they were being hauled off as spoils of victory. We're told the two pillars, the one sea, that is the basin in which the priests would wash their hands, the twelve bronze bulls which were under it, and the carts which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits. A measuring line of 12 cubits could measure its circumference, and its thickness was four fingers. It was hollow. Now a cubit was a Hebrew measurement, 18 inches. And so 18 cubits was 27 feet, which were the height of these bronze columns that sat out in front of the temple. These columns were 12 cubits or 18 feet in circumference and four fingers or three inches thick. Needless to say, these were large. These were very heavy pillars. Verse 22 goes on. A capital of bronze was on it and the height of one capital was five cubits with a network and pomegranates all around the capital, all of bronze. The second pillar with pomegranates was the same. And of course, capitals were the ornaments that would sit on top of the pillar, the decorations, of course, that would sit on top of the pillar. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides, and all the pomegranates all around on the network were 100. The captain of the guard took Zariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, seven men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamoth, Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. These are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Jews 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. The Babylonians invaded Judah three times, in 605, in 597, and in 586 B.C. There could have been more, but here he lists three deportations, in 597, 586, and then in 581 B.C. Verse 31. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, In the twelfth month, on the twenty-fifth day of the month, 
that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Now, King Jehoiakim had been Zedekiah's immediate predecessor. He had been deposed to Babylon in 597 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah actually took his place. Apparently, while in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's successor became Jehoiakim's friend. This evil Merodach, we're told, spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. Jewish tradition says that when God struck the proud king Nebuchadnezzar with madness, when he acted like an animal, you, you, the Bible actually documents his, his craziness. You can go back to Daniel chapter 4 and you can read of how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. During that time, apparently, evil Merodach usurped his father's authority and took the throne. So that when Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses, he punished his son for doing so. He had evil Merodach thrown into prison where he met Jehoiakim, the former king of Judah. And evidently they became close friends. So that when evil Merodach succeeded his father and took the throne, the new king remembered his Jewish pal and gave special provisions to Jehoiakim. Allowed him to change out of his prison scrubs and actually put him in street clothes and allowed him to participate at the king's table and eat from the king's supplies. He was very benevolent toward him. We're told, and as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death, all the days of his life. It's nice to have a friend in high places. Yep. It's interesting. In 1939, an archaeologist named Wiedner was sifting through some rubble at the site of the ancient hanging gardens of Babylon. You've heard of that. While he was there, he found a cuneiform tablet listing the yearly allotments of oil and grain to different kings. One was, and I quote, to Jehoiakim, king of the land of Judah. His archaeological find was confirmation of what Jeremiah tells us here. Today, this tablet is on exhibit in a museum in Berlin. And it's another example of just how true it is. With every turn of the archaeologist's spade, it proves the historical reliability of the Bible. Here's a good example. Which brings us to Jeremiah's lamentations. Now remember, chapter 1 is in acrostic form. Verse 1 begins with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. Verse 2 begins with the second letter, Bet. Which, by the way, is where we get our English word, alphabet. Get it? Alphabet. The word alphabet is Hebrew. It's the first two letters. By in employing this acrostic to his lament, Jeremiah is in essence saying to us that every letter in the Hebrew language is needed to express the depths of God's sorrow. God was grieved over what had happened to his people. He took no delight in their judgment. The title Lamentations comes from the Greek and Latin translations of the Bible. It's interesting, in the Hebrew Bible, the title of the book was usually just the first word of the book. 
Thus, the title of lamentation should be the word how, or ah, or alas. It was a sigh. You could say that in the Hebrew Bible, this book is known as the sigh. The book of Lamentations is also an excellent example of Hebrew poetry. But unlike English poetry, the Hebrew style of poetry wasn't based on rhyme, but on parallelism. One thought was contrasted up against another thought. Hebrew poetry does utilize meter or cadence. And Lamentations was written in what's called a clipped meter, or what is known as a limping beat. The first thought is written in four beats. The second thought is one beat slower. It's written in three beats. And the result was sort of a melancholy sound. It was a common uh, tool for funeral dirges and for eulogies and for mourning. You remember in the days of Jesus, there were professional grievers in Israel who specialized in writing tunes using this limping beat. You remember the professional mourners who mocked and laughed at Jesus when he went to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. You remember that? They were singing a mournful tune. Oh, but Jesus got the last laugh. When the day was done, the little girl and her family were singing a new new song, a song of joy. In English, we're going to miss most of the cadence. But in the Hebrew, it's definitely there. This book was meant for all who mourn, particularly for those who have been chastened and disciplined by the Lord, who are currently suffering for previous sins. That could be you tonight. Lamentations is actually a manual on real repentance. It's learning how to see our sin as God sees it. Well, Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1 begins, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Jeremiah contrasts Jerusalem with her former glory. She was once a bustling city, a glorious city. But now she's been reduced to ash and rubble. During the reigns of King David and Solomon, the Israeli theocracy, this city became a world power. Her citizens were hailed as the most privileged and blessed on the planet. But now, we're told, she sits lonely and broken and forsaken. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations? The princes among the provinces has become a slave. Feet that once wore the golden slipper have now been fitted With a ball and chain. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Her lovers were the false gods she had worshipped and served. Her friends were the foreign nations that she had trusted in instead of God. And now, where are they? Nowhere to be found. Verse 3, Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits or in severe distress. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted and she is in bitterness. There was a time when all of the roads leading up to Jerusalem were filled with happy pilgrims coming up to the temple to worship God. Several of the Psalms were written by those pilgrims. The Psalms of Ascent, for example, were written by pilgrims who 
made merry, who partied in essence as they came up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. But now where are those pilgrims? All the roads are desolate. No one's coming to Jerusalem now. Imagine driving through downtown Atlanta on Friday at 5 o'clock and all the lanes are empty. There's just no one there. Where's the traffic? Where are the people? You'd conclude immediately that something was terribly wrong. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. We've got a family of deer that live in my neighborhood and some nights you'll be driving home and they'll be out in the middle of the street until they see you. And then all of a sudden they bolt out into the woods. Think of a skittish deer. Think of a deer that is scared. The moment it sees the headlights, it runs and flees. The leaders of Zion had become scared and skittish. They weren't leaders anymore at all. Verse 7. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her, the adversaries saw her and mocked at her downfall. And notice she has no one to blame but herself. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore she has become vile. All, her honored, her, all, who, honored her, all who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. In other words, Jerusalem can no longer pretend. She can no longer hide behind her former glory, her past victories. She has been uncovered for what she is. Her sin has been exposed. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. One of the effects of sin is a short-sightedness. All I can see is what's immediately in front, front of me. Sin causes us to lose our long-term outlook. For a person living in unconfessed sin, life is all about instant gratification. There's little concern for the long-term consequences of my actions. It's like the guy who fell in love with skydiving. He just loved the thrill of jumping out of an airplane. I don't understand jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, but apparently it's very thrilling. The rush of the free fall. Oh, it's just an incredible experience. And so this guy, he was into it. He jumped out of the airplane one day without checking to make sure that his chute was packed properly. Whoa. Not a good idea. It reminds me of the ad that once read, For sale, parachute, once used, never opened. Not a good thing. When you act, do you first think, what are the long-term consequences of this action? We should. Satan wants us to live for today with no regard for the future. Just live for the day. Live for the moment. You hear the messages all the time. Grab for all the gusto. You only go around once in life. Just do it. We're called the impulse society. It's like the following public service ad I found. It says, I won't wear a helmet. It makes me look stupid. 
And now the motorcycle accident victim has a head injury. He's being spoon-fed. Again, consider the consequences of your actions. This is what Judah failed to do. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. Verse 10, the adversary has spread his hand over, her, over all her pleasant things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom he command, you commanded not to enter your assembly. Pagans had entered the temple. They had desecrated the sacred temple. The holy places had been reserved for God's people and priests and presence. Yet now marauding armies had invaded the sacred precincts. And it grieved God's heart. I think spiritually speaking, this occurs when worldly techniques and attitudes take root in the church. When we invite worldliness into the church of God, into our ministries and into our worship. The temple of God needs to be, de- needs to be dedicated, not desecrated. And then he says in verse 11, All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, whom, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. You know, it's hard to fathom Jeremiah's own personal pain in all of this. He's been pleading with these people for 40 years to repent, and they had refused, and now they're suffering the consequences. And here he cries out, Is any sorrow like my sorrow? From above he has sent fire into my bones, and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. Notice Jeremiah sees that his trouble and the demise of this nation has come from the hand of God. God is the one responsible for this judgment. Listen, our God isn't squeamish. Will he judge people for their sin? You're right, he will. He's a holy God. He's not afraid to discipline his people. His punishment is swift and it can be stern. He knows what it takes to get our attention. And he knows that sin must be judged. He says, he made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. Recall the yoke that Jeremiah wore back in chapter 27. Remember he wore this big yoke, harness, animal harness. It was a symbol of the bondage that would one day come upon the nation if they continued to disobey God. And now that prophecy has been realized. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water. And here is why we call him. We call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Here his eyes overflow with tears. He's grieved over what's happened to God's people. Because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. 
My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. It's interesting. No other nation had come to her rescue. Remember, they had tried to befriend Babylon. They had tried to befriend Egypt. But in the end, no one was their ally. They should have trusted in God. Only He would have helped. Verse 18, The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against His commandment. Hear now, O all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. And notice Jeremiah doesn't blame God for what's happened to him. He says, the Lord is righteous. Here is the heart of a truly repentant person. He knows that what has come upon him is his own fault. And so he's not casting blame. He's not blaming the wife. He's not blaming the kids. He's not blaming the boss. He's not blaming the long hours. He's not throwing God under the bus for his sin. Oh, if God had done, or if God had done, he's not doing that. He's not saying, oh, why hasn't God delivered us? No, the problem wasn't God's ability to deliver. It was the people's unwillingness to live lives surrendered to him. The first step in repentance is to accept responsibility for the place that you're in. Verse 19, I called for my lovers. Those those false gods they had been serving, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, at home it is like death. They have heard that I sigh. But no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. And you think you had a bad day today. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. And do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many and my heart is faint. Jeremiah is asking God to judge his enemies with the same measure by which He has judged him. Lamentations 2. How? It's the same word that began chapter 1. The title of the book. It's a sigh. Oh, the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. In the Old Testament, God often referred to Israel as his footstool. You know, God is bigger than the heavens. The universe can't contain him. Yet when he wants to kick up his feet, when he wants to just rest and put his feet up in the air, he rests his feet in Israel. He kicks off his shoes. He calls Jerusalem home. The temple was his footstool. Today, God still has a footstool on earth. Guess what it is? It's His church. We're God's footstool. Where two or three are gathered together, Jesus promises to be in our midst. We're where He reveals Himself today, in the midst of His people. Verse 2, The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in His wrath 
the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. An animal's strength was in its horns. And thus he's saying here, God cut off her strength. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. Now, God wasn't Israel's enemy. I mean, in contrast, he was their father. But for a time, they felt as if God were their enemy. In fact, he was acting like their enemy. And if you are a father, you know how this works. A dad loves his kids. He wants what's best for them. But when he doesn't buckle under to their demands, when he refuses to be manipulated or intimidated by his kids, when his father puts his foot down, sometimes the kids will call him the meanest man. You're the meanest man in all the world. One author defines a dad as the provider of all and the enemy of all. This is how I sometimes feel as a pastor. I take a stand for truth and people think I'm their enemy. No, I'm not. Or I don't do exactly what they want and they assume I'm against them. Neither is true. It's my job to give people what they need, not necessarily what they want. And this is God's attitude toward us. This is why the Lord has to discipline us at times. What parent doesn't discipline their kid? Only the one who doesn't love them. Hebrews 12 reads, Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Be glad when God spanks you. It's an indication that He loves you. That you're truly His child. And yet Hebrews 12 verse 11 adds, No chastening seems to be joyful for the present. (laughs) No matter how much you know He loves you, it's no fun to get spanked. But it is a necessary correction. You know, a big key to a happy life is learning to recognize your true friends and your enemies. There may be times when God seems to be your enemy, but trust me, in reality, He is always your best friend. Well, verse 5 continues. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. The Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. 
Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Often in the scriptures, a lack of vision is a judgment from God. And here Jeremiah bemoans, mourns, grieves over all their losses. The beauties and the blessings of Jerusalem are now gone. The temple which once stood in the midst of the city that dominated the skyline of the city, it's gone. The feast that they all came to enjoy is gone. The altar where they laid their sacrifices is now gone. The beautiful walls and the gates, even the king and the leaders, finally, even the law and the prophets are all gone. All these gifts to Israel were squandered and are now gone. Don't take God's gifts for granted. Don't you dare. Continue in your faith. Lay hold of those blessings. God can take them if He pleases. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. Jeremiah wasn't the only person who grieved. The elders of the city showed signs of their mourning. They sat there in sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. Again, the weeping prophet weeps. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. In other words, Jeremiah lost his lunch over Jerusalem's destruction. He threw up. He dry heaved over the devastation that he saw. His bile is poured out. Even the children and the infants were victims, and he causes him great grief. Verse 12, they say to their mothers, Where is grain and wine? As they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. In the aftermath of the siege, the infants of Jerusalem had gone without food, without drink. There was no food. How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? Now remember, Deuteronomy chapter 28 had promised Israel either blessings or curses. If they obeyed the law, God said that they would be blessed. If they disobeyed the law, God said that they would be cursed. And the blessings and the curses were incomparable. No nation would be as blessed and no nation would be as cursed. Both were proof that the true God was the God of Israel. And here they are suffering. The severity of the curses. Verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. Throughout Jeremiah's life, he had battled these false prophets. He had opposed and confronted these teachers who kept telling the Jews that there was nothing to fear. Peace, peace upon you. He kept, these false teachers kept telling the Jews what they wanted to hear, that deliverance was just around the corner. Oh, don't worry. God will never judge you. 
These false prophets refused to speak the truth. Rather than expose sin, they watered it down. They gave the people a false hope and a sense of security when they should have been on their knees, heeding the warning, repenting of their sin. And you know, I hate to say it, but this is exactly what's happening in churches today. We're hearing this message of the false prophet. It's all okay. Oh, it's not so bad. Sin is not, is not sin. It's, it's not, not that big of a sin. It's really not sin. What we've called sin is really not sin now. We're hearing these kinds of things today. False prophets. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. Envision delusions. This is what we're hearing preached from our pulpits today. Verse 15, all who pass by clap their hands at you and they hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? It's interesting, Judah's enemies were quoting scripture. Psalm 48 had described Jerusalem as the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth. But now her enemies are mocking the city. In other words, the city that had lived in bliss is now just a hiss. They're mocking it, shaming it. But take note, even God's enemies read the Bible, don't they? They knew Psalm 48, which reminds us that just having a Bible, just reading your Bible, it's not enough. We need to believe and obey what it says. He says, all your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. The Lord has done what he proposed. He has fulfilled his word which he commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and is not pitied. And he has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. He's exalted their strength. All that had happened to Jerusalem was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Verse 18, Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Jerusalem should be shedding tears, not just Jeremiah. He says, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Uh, the night watch was divided into three shifts, from 10 to midnight, from midnight to 2, and then from 2 to 6. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward Him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the end of every street. See, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? This was horrible. The unthinkable had happened. At the end of the 18-month Babylonian siege against Jerusalem, food in the city had become so scarce that women had resorted to cannibalism. They were eating their own babies and children in order to survive. We shudder at the prospects of such. But who knows what you'd do if faced with starvation. Verse 21, young and old lie on the ground in the streets 
My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there was no refugee or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. The Babylonians had taken no prisoners. They had left no survivors. Sadly, even some of Jeremiah's own family and friends, whom I have borne and brought up, he says, had been slaughtered. Jeremiah loved the people. He cared about the plight of others. The stains, the tears that stained his cheeks were proof. Reminds me of the two men who were discussing their respective churches. The first man said to, to his friend, you know, we just fired our pastor and we hired a new one. The other fellow replied, wow, why did you fire him? The first man answered, well, because he spoke too much about hell. His buddy asked him, he says, well, that's, that's interesting. He said, does the new pastor, does he speak about hell? The man replied, oh, yeah, all the time. The man was confused. He says, well, wait a minute. What's the difference? First man answered, well, when the new pastor speaks about hell, you get the impression he doesn't want you to go there. That's a big deal. It was said of the great evangelist D.L. Moody, only Mr. Moody has the right to preach on hell, for when he does, he preaches it with tears in his voice. Maybe the reason folks aren't listening to us is because they don't think we care. When was the last time you or I shed a tear over the soul of another person? The key could be in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where Paul tells us, speaking the truth in love. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. Lord, I pray that we could take these lamentations of Jeremiah, that we could take them to heart. 